Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Can you hear me up there in the remotest reaches? You can. Um, I'm Tony Barnett from LSE Health and LSE AIDS, and I'm chairing tonight's meeting. This is one of a series of lectures um, funded by the Department for International Development, whose enormous generosity and interested in furthering public understanding of HIV, AIDS, other infectious diseases, and reproductive health makes this whole series possible, and we're very, very grateful to them. And I'd like to just draw your attention to the part of what I just said, which said, and other infectious diseases, because those of you who come to this lecture, these lectures will know that I always emphasize that because I think that the fact that social scientists give very, very little attention to infectious diseases is really very bad indeed. And those of you who are thinking of doing dissertations and uh, PhDs should really think about doing something on the social science of infectious diseases. It's a totally under-researched area. So there's my personal advertisement. This series of lectures um, started off last November with a lecture by Helen Epstein, and then we had one on January the 10th by David Labarro on the global pandemic influenza epidemic. And he complained to me that by giving this roll call of who was giving the lectures, I made him seem to be merely a warm-up warm act. Well, I'm not doing that this evening, but I'm going to tell you about future lectures as well. Um, the lecture on February the 12th, that's next week, is by Michel Kazachkin, who is head of the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and, and, um, and, and malaria. And then on March the 11th, the last lecture in the series will be uh, Sir Roy Anderson, who is one of the originators of modern epidemic modeling. And he's going to talk about infectious disease pandemics and social and economic factors in the development of public health policy, which will be very interesting for all those of you who've suddenly decided you want to do research about the social science of infectious diseases. So, you get that message, I hope. Um, tonight's lecturer is Dr. Alex Duval. Now, many of you will have heard of Alex Duval. I think he's one of the most distinguished anthropologists of his generation. You can blush later. Um, because... He wrote his PhD thesis on Darfur. At that time, very few people, probably other than he and I, had actually ever heard of Darfur. Uh, we now have all heard of Darfur. And he's recently reissued his book, which came out of his PhD thesis, and it was a remarkable book because it attacked many of the conventional wisdoms, and he still continues to attack conventional wisdoms. He is... Uh, currently attached as program director to the United States Social Science Research Council and is also attached to Harvard University at the Global Humanitarian Initiative. He's just recently altered the title. He's also co-director co of Justice Africa. Tonight, he's going to talk about AIDS... Uh, and the politics of AIDS exceptionalism because his recent work has been in many respects about issues around HIV and he's published a book called um, AIDS and Power and you may want to purchase a copy of that if you don't, I can't believe it if you don't already own one they are for sale outside he will no doubt sign it 
And if you actually buy his book on Darfur, one of his books on Darfur, he'll sign both of them for you, which will be very good indeed. Alex. Thank you very much, Tony, and thank you for inviting me. And um, the reason why I chose this topic, AIDS exceptionalism, to, to give a presentation on at this moment, is I, is, is I think that we are in a very important moment of transition in, in the entire global politics of HIV and AIDS. An interesting evolution in the global institutional response to the pandemic in which a response that has been in important respects exceptionalist, and this is a word that the, uh, that the global leaders of AIDS institutions, notably Peter Piot, used themselves. This exceptionalist response is, I think, uh, under onslaught from some very interesting revisionist uh, strands, revisionist arguments. And, and what I want to do in, the, in the, the course of this lecture is really three things. The first is to, is to lay out exceptionalism, um, the, the different doctrines that constitute exceptionalism. Secondly, to, to address and, and, and lay out the revisionist arguments that are coming, and then ask some questions about the politics of this whole process. What's it all good for? And I think this process of revisionism is already proven to be quite a painful one, a difficult and painful process for many who are involved in the business of HIV and AIDS globally. Um, and I think it is also a very significant one for very large numbers uh, of people around the globe. Um, HIV AIDS has come to occupy a very important place in global health, politics, um, policy, programming, and financing, not only because it has actually unlocked vast resources, unprecedented resources, resources that we couldn't have dreamed of, 10 or 15 years ago for HIV and AIDS, but also it has had a spillover or a knock-on effect onto other infectious diseases, uh, malaria and, and, and TB. They're lagging, but I think one of the interesting questions as we contemplate what is, I think, the end of global AIDS exceptionalism is the extent to which other infectious diseases will be uh, caught up in processes, processes of either receiving more money and more political or perhaps less. Now, the, the um, revisionist uh, analyses have been around for, for, for quite a while, but I think this year is going to be very, very critical in uh, the, the, the political traction that they get. And I think uh, uh, Lisa Pisani's book, The, the Wisdom of Pause, which is, which is going to be published in a few months, will, will perhaps be the, the, the crux of that. I think it's going to generate uh, a very high level of debate. So let me begin with examining AIDS exceptionalism as it has evolved and existed over um, the last few years. It's the convergence of two paradigms, one concerning the nature of the epidemic and the other the nature of the response. And they are very distinct and in some respects actually they're quite incompatible. Now, two years ago, Peter Piot, in the introduction to a UN report on scaling up treatment, wrote the following. The AIDS pandemic is as serious a threat to humanity's prospects for progress and stability as global warming or nuclear proliferation. It's exceptional in its scale, complexity, 
and the consequences across generations in severity, longevity, and its impact. It can only be defeated with sustained attention and the kind of anything-it-takes resolve that member states apply to preventing global financial meltdowns or wars. So Peter Piot identifies the dimensions of exceptionalism in the nature of HIV-AIDS pandemic, scale, complexity, severity, etc. But his last sentence about how to defeat it doesn't, I think, capture the complexity, it doesn't capture what exceptionalism of response is. Um, let me explain a little bit more what I mean. I think actually Peter's argument is, is, is actually contradictory. Let's look at the five elements of the exceptionalism of the nature of the pandemic. First of all, scale, the sheer numbers of people infected, and in the worst hit countries in southern Africa, the proportion of the population. While this isn't in itself unprecedented, um, for a disease that causes a large number of fatalities, it has relatively few precedents. The, 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 the obvious one is the 1918-1919 flu pandemic. But the point that Peter Piot really wants to make underneath this in terms of scale is that HIV-AIDS is everyone's concern, that there is overall the danger, the ever-present danger of a global generalized pandemic. And this, I think, was an important mantra for or expectation for many in the HIV-AIDS business, including UNAIDS, for many years, that the levels of infection that were being seen in, in southern and eastern Africa could be the future of the epidemic in other parts of the world. Um, I think that expectation, that mantra, is beginning to wear thin. The second component, severity. HIV is fatal. It's worse than that, it's expensively and traumatically fatal. And there's no acquired immunity. I don't think there's any disagreement on that. The third element, longevity. This, I think, is, 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 is where, it, where the exceptionalist argument begins to get really rather interesting. It's not intrinsically unusual for an epidemic of an infectious disease to unfold over a long period of time. Syphilis, for example, did that. But there are other features of the HIV-AIDS epidemic that I think in terms of longevity that we need to pay special attention to. The first is that it need not be a one-shot epidemic. It need not follow the epidemic curve of rising, peaking, and declining, and then fading away. It could bounce back. And indeed, it is bouncing back in, in, in some cities in Europe and, and North America uh, with, with new infection among, among certain groups, including gay men. And it may be bouncing back as well in, in, in Uganda and possibly in Mozambique, where HIV prevalence levels fell in the case of Uganda or stagnated in, in, in the case of Mozambique. And I'm sure the statisticians can argue about exactly how real this, these recent increases are, but I think they are fairly robust. So we need to be alert to, um, to that possibility. And then there's a new term that's been introduced by UNAIDS into the debate or into, into the entire discourse on HIV and AIDS, which is hyperendemic. And I think this is, this is very significant because this is where the exceptionalist argument really does carry some water. Um, hyperendemic means that very high levels of prevalence can be sustained for long periods of time, possibly indefinitely. There's nothing particularly odd in themselves about 
endemic infections. There are there's HPV, which causes warts and so on, which is a hyperendemic infection in many human populations. What's very unusual is to have a hyperendemic lethal infection, and one in which no acquired immunity exists. Um, and in southern Africa, and I think we have to now distinguish uh, South Africa and the countries immediately around it from East Africa, where the epidemics are following rather different course. In southern Africa, this hyperendemicity is uh, a unique feature of that population, and, and, and one with really far-reaching repercussions that we haven't yet begun to grasp. Um, because, and, and because of the time lag between infection and the development of, of symptomatic AIDS. It is, it is quite possible for HIV to be sustained in human populations without a decrease in virulence over time. Normally, uh, viruses uh, adapt to their, um, to their hosts and become less virulent. It doesn't necessarily need to be the case for HIV because of the, the pattern of transmission being uh, very early on after infection and then death only occurring many years later. Um, most cases of the word exceptional in the HIV and AIDS literature really mean just very bad or unusual. Um, but in the case of hyperendemicity, it really is exceptional. It confounds the normal disease pattern in important respects. Um, fourth element that Peter Piot mentioned is breadth of impact. But let me move straight on really to complexity of impact. That is really what, he, uh, what he's talking about. The individual elements of the pandemic aren't in themselves unique, but this combination is, is something that is, that, that is unique and has far-reaching implications. There are other diseases that infect as many people or, as, or are as severe, which have comparably long epidemic trajectories, but few, if any, have all of these. The virology, the long period of asymptomatic latency, the multiple measures, methods of transmission mean that HIV and AIDS really is, I think, authentically um, exceptional in a couple of important respects with reference in particular to these hyper-endemic um, areas in, in southern Africa. Now, in contrast, let's look at the exceptionalism of the response. If indeed it were the case that HIV-AIDS were recognized as a threat to humankind comparable to nuclear proliferation, we might have expected the kinds of responses that were intrusive and coercive, characteristic of emergencies. Emergencies, including public health emergencies, where states um, take this, what Peter Piot called the anything-it-takes approach, coercive, intrusive measures. And the language of emergency is quite often used with reference to HIV and AIDS, but very rarely in the sense of true emergency measures being taken. Emergency measures that are actually on the statute books. And indeed, if you even look at the um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you will see that most, many fundamental human rights can actually be suspended in the case of a public health emergency according to that declaration. It has not been invoked. So, that concept of emergency has not been used. We have the US President's 
emergency plan for AIDS relief. But the word emergency here is used very loosely, just to refer to a very short-term threat. Um, and the fact that the response is not a developmental one, it's a, it's a medical humanitarian one. There have also been calls for countries like South Africa to declare HIV-AIDS a national emergency in order that they can circumvent um, the international regime of international property rights. But that's a very instrumental use. As I said, the types of emergency responses associated with, say, SARS or the threat of, of bioterrorism have not been so I think Peter is actually wrong in characterizing the, the international response as uh, actually exceptional or even potentially exceptional in that regard. It's been the converse. It's been the exact reverse. Measures otherwise normal in public health emergencies, like mandatory testing, like partner tracing, like coercive restrictions on the infected to prevent them from transmitting the disease, have been precluded completely. It's been actually a response based upon what, what, what the historian of infectious disease, Peter Baldwin, called a presumption of good epidemiological citizenship. The burden of response to HIV-AIDS has not lain with the state and its, or its apparatus, but with the individual. And there are a number of strands that converge here on, on, in the way in which, uh, in, in I think what is truly an exceptional and innovative way, the burden of public health response has been shifted by governments from themselves to, to, to individuals. One strand is, is, which we all know about, is the legacy of gay mobilization in the United States. A phenomenal, dare one say, exceptional response to, to, to a health emergency. Um, this has translated into a set of human rights principles for public health that have, have privileged the rights of the individual who may or may not be HIV positive. And this has led to, of course, as we, as we know, some considerable unhappiness among many public health specialists who complain with some justification, I would argue, that the, um, the right to privacy of the HIV-positive individual has been privileged over and above the rights to remain uninfected or the right to, to, to obtain treatment of his or her actual or prospective partner. So the, the presumption is that with information with and with persuasion, the individual will act in, in the way that, that he or she is obliged to as a good epidemiological citizen and not transmit the virus to others. Now this flies in the face of everything we know about social behavior. It's a distinctly odd assumption. And everything I think that we've learned about the context in which HIV is transmitted, the constraints on individuals who, 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 who may be infecting others or becoming infected themselves suggests that they, these assumptions simply don't hold true. So it seems very odd, but if we go back 20, 25 years, perhaps it was less odd in the 1980s in, in, in the United States. Firstly, because of the very specific circumstances of, of the gay community that felt itself under threat, that privileged its own collective rights but also because of the assumption at that time that infectious diseases as a whole were being consigned to history. So the response to, to, to HIV and AIDS was very much within the response to, to say, to partly to cancer, or partly to the assumption that, that the public health of populations lay in uh, the hands of individuals themselves following more healthy and responsible lifestyles. 
and indeed the, the wider assumption common uh, in, 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 in that strongly neoliberal era, that addressing social problems in general just needed individuals to act differently, irrespective of their social and economic circumstances. Another component of exceptionalism in this response is um, having identified voluntary behavior change as the real driving factor in, 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 in responding to HIV and the implication for public health and, 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 and social policy in general was that the wider social mechanisms for enabling that change were entirely ancillary to the, the individual response. So in developed countries, we saw peer educators and information and communication approaches backed by technologies. And a lot of controversy about exactly what should be in these approaches, needle exchanges, condoms, etc. But an assumption shared by liberals and Christian fundamentalists are alike about what I would call this epidemiological individualism. It's up to the individual. In poor countries, especially in Africa, the story is a bit different. Um, and, and an interesting twist, I think. And let me caricature it. Let me be a little bit provocative. Let me suggest that the rather than adapting the response to the realities of these the approach is characterized as one of trying to adapt the circumstances of those countries to the technologies on offer. That is the assumption that if only we could provide, if, if we could help engineer sufficient social and economic development in African countries, also by extension in Asian countries, then these technologies of peer education, individual behavior change would work. So the whole developmental apparatus was, uh, was brought to bear on this. Um, we needed to create an environment in which one could have mature, individual, responsible epidemiological citizenship, rather than addressing the actual social realities that existed. I think that is one implication of this uh, exceptionist response. An interesting digression here, actually. Um, it may be the case, if we look at the Asian epidemics, that this is actually happening. The rate of economic growth, social change, that's happening in much of Asia means that in Asian cities, actually, uh, behaviors are changing. That the social behavior is changing such that we get identifiable gay communities. We get um, a change in, in dating patterns and, and, and so on, such that the, the approaches that were developed for European and North American cities are actually becoming increasingly applicable to the environment in, in, in in, in these cities. Um, let me turn to the revisionist trend. Um, the, the trend that is now pushing HIV and AIDS in the direction of normalization. Um, I won't deal with the, the AIDS dissenters, the people who deny that HIV and AIDS are, 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 are not linked. There's been an articulate minority view arguing throughout that traditional public health measures to control sexually transmitted infections should be implemented, even though this is an abrogation of individuals' right to privacy. And they've been pointing out fairly consistently that in almost every epidemic outside southern and eastern Af Africa, it's actually relatively easily identifiable groups that are at highest risk. The, 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 the risks of 
the probabilities of generalized heterosexual epidemics in these populations are, are, are very low. Even in West Africa, which has been assumed, it has been often assumed that it would follow the Eastern and Southern African model, the, the reality is that the great majority of infections in, in many countries actually come through uh, sexual encounters uh, with, with commercial sex workers, um, one, one way or the other. Uh, in Ghana, I think the figure is, is, is something over 80% of, of, of infections are estimated to be uh, in that context. The politics of this are interesting. The minority that has been arguing for a more targeted, more traditional public health approach, generally speaking, have gone along with the exceptionist response because of the layers of stigma and, and complication involved in reaching these targeted populations. And exceptionalism, as they've seen it, has brought more resources than would otherwise have been available. And by saying that HIV AIDS is everyone's problem, they've helped destigmatize it. Now, under this umbrella of massive resources, AIDS is everyone's problem, it should, in principle, be possible to design specific programs targeted at those who really are at risk in these, uh, in these other epidemics. Um, it hasn't really happened. On the other hand, um, it's, it's important to note, I think, that HIV-AIDS has not been a pretext for a crackdown on these groups, something that we might have expected, given the, uh, the, the nature of the, uh, of the disease and the stigma and isolation with, um, of, 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 of these groups themselves. There has not been any, any, any widespread crackdown. But what's happening now, I think, is that the revisionist views are gathering sufficient empirical evidence, analytical cogency, and political momentum that the, these two twin paradigms, AIDS is a, a major exceptional threat, and AIDS warrants this exceptional response, I think they're no longer firm. And that much-abused term paradigm shift, I think, is, is applicable. I think we are on the brink of one. Now, a signal of is UNAIDS revision of the statistics for global infections. And as you all know, those uh, estimates for global numbers of people infected with HIV have been revised downwards um, in the region of 20% in, in, in the last uh, global estimate. Um, and, and, and the variation in the revision of the figures is, 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 is very wide, but it's, it's fairly common across the board. Um, this doesn't, of course, mean that you know, AIDS is actually any less of a threat than it was a few years ago when the figure of 33 million, the figure now used, was um, being bandied around even though it was in place at then. Um, the figures that are being used today are the same as the figures that were uh, uh, believed to be the truth when Kofi Annan and others were saying AIDS is an unprecedented global threat and, and the future of Africa is in, in, in peril. So it's not really you know, an improvement in any, in any significant respect. Um, 33 million is still you know, a grotesquely high figure. But the political impact of this downward revision should, I think, not be underestimated. The implication that is being heard by policymakers is AIDS isn't as bad as we thought. And actually, in important respects, that implication is correct. Because the second adjustment is on the forecast for the figures. Because it's now becoming clear, as we read the figures back into history, 
that in sub-Saharan Africa, where, of course, the epidemic, the global pandemic is worse, incidents peaked in the last years of the 1990s and prevalence peaked um, in 2000, 2001. And in most countries, prevalence is now flat or declining. Uh, in a few, it's increasing, of course. Um, and the predictions that were being made five to seven years ago about a gigantic second wave are simply not going to come and pass, are not going to come to pass. However, of course, the hyper-endemicity problem should not, I think, be uh, underestimated. In South Africa and the immediately adjoining countries, it still, at the moment, is the case that 50% or more of the population will contract HIV during their lifetimes unless things change radically. Um, the book by James Chin is, I think, one of the clear signals uh, of, of, of the cogency and force of this revisionist uh, critique. It's been taken very seriously. And we can expect a, a debate in Africa. You know, Chin is, is primarily concerned with the, uh, uh, with the Asian epidemics. But as it becomes clear that the uh, exceptionalism that exists in Africa, if the hyperendemicity is confined really to southern Africa, and eastern Africa is on a declining trend. Uh, Western and central Africa are most unlikely to see the sorts of HIV prevalence levels that uh, existed even in, in, in East Africa uh, 10, 12 years ago. I think we will begin to see uh, a lot of, of, of revisionist critique about the nature of the epidemics in, 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 in these countries. Um, a couple of, 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 of points I think that are important to bear in mind about this. One is that the, uh, the revisionist critique carries a lot of cogency from the much better epidemiological data that we now have. Um, Helen Epstein's work um, and others like Daniel Halperin have been working on this too, in fact pioneering it, on the importance of concurrent sexual partnerships in the, the transmission of HIV in hyperendemic populations is, I think, very important because this begins to allow us really to get a handle much better than we, uh, than we had even a few years ago on the actual epidemiology of transmission. And it begins to make some of the, the, the politically uh, popular explanations that attribute HIV to poverty or to inequality, makes them look not to say that these explanations don't have uh, some value, but they need to sharpen up their analyses a great deal to compete with the specificity of explanation that the concurrency arguments and concurrency data are, 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 are able to bring. Um, and as I say, the uh, Elizabeth Pisani's Wisdom of Wars book is going to, I think, is, 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 is really going to spark a lot of debate and a lot of momentum in this revisionism. There's another revisionism too, which is revisiting the predictions for social, economic, and political impact. Eight years ago, a US national intelligence estimate predicted that the epidemic would sufficiently impact the capacity of African states that it would be a threat to the security of the United States. Uh, one of a quotation from that report of 
the persistent infectious disease burden is likely to aggravate and in some cases may even provoke economic decay, social fragmentation, and political destabilization of the hardest hit countries of the world. Now, uh, that was 2000. Today we may be maybe a little bit more skeptical about the uh, CIA's prediction for what it calls hard intelligence, but at the time that was taken extremely seriously. Um, and then let me quote a second colorful prediction, and I will not give the author's names to spare their, spare their blushes. Quote, amid the unrelenting catalog of horrors, this is about Africa, must be added the real possibility that with HIV AIDS, the very survival of the African state may well be at stake. There is every reason to suppose that AIDS will be the deciding factor in shaping the body politics in many societies on the continent. Um, now, predictions like that actually turn out to be a, 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 a catalog of horrors that can't really be tested. Um, now, a few years ago, I was among those who, who, who indulged in some fairly pessimistic speculation about what HIV and AIDS would do to African society. Um, and I tried to shape those speculations into some testable hypotheses. Um, and two, I think, uh, I particularly shaped. One was the theory, or the, the model that what, what the catastrophic drop in adult life expectancy would do would be to, for, would be to run a waiver in reverse. We would see the deinstitutionalization of African states. I also suggested that we might be seeing the, the emergence of what I call the new variant famine, which I um, identified specifically as the undermining of the resilience of rural societies to cope with shocks. Um, a few years on, I think we can say fairly conclusively that neither of these predictions were borne out. There may be some elements of, of, of analysis in both of them that, that, that hold water, but I think I, I, I would like to suggest that neither of them holds up. And one chapter in my book, Aids and Power, is examining why I think um, what I wrote before is not correct. Uh, I think we can say, yes, HIV AIDS is having adverse impacts on, 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 on many of these aspects, and particularly on, on resilience, I would say, on the ability to withstand other shocks. But it, it is not the deciding factor in African food security, and above all, not in the future of African government. And as the, the, the evidence has come in, I think the, the, that speculation um, is, 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 is on the whole disappearing, though I should add that that colorful body politics quote was actually from a book published last year, which um, illustrates actually how in this field there is an extraordinary resistance to, 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 to data, that uh, paradigms survive long after their empirical foundation Um, the title of my book is uh, Aids and Power, Why There Is No Political Crisis Yet. And I dithered over whether to use the word yet at the end, because my own view was actually there won't be any political crisis, but I thought let me just leave it open a little bit. Um, there will be some political crisis, I should say. There will be scandals over contaminated blood supplies on transmission of HIV to children through um, unsterilized needles. There'll be political controversies over needle exchange programs, over condoms. There may be prosecutions when individuals have deliberately infected others with HIV. Political embarrassments when senior politicians have 
have sex with individuals who are HIV positive and then make various claims about how they can uh, prevent infection and so on. Can, and you know, that sort of political crisis definitely we can expect. And we can expect countries to be weaker. We can expect the administrative capacity to be undermined um, as, as there are uh, fewer individuals with, um, with skills in, 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 in the key age sets, etc. There'll be less growth, there'll be reduced resilience. But I don't believe there will be social chaos or political disorder brought on by the impact of HIV and AIDS. I don't think that people living with HIV and AIDS will storm government ministries. They won't instigate revolution. I don't think hordes of unsocialized orphans will tear down the pillars of society. And I don't think any country is going to invade its neighbor because it thinks that its neighbor's army is so depleted by HIV and AIDS that it's, it's a sitting duck. Um, what we know about African states is that they can actually survive uh, even greater insects than, um, than, than HIV AIDS and have done so in the past. And, and a fair chunk of my book, AIDS in Power, is trying to explain why um, there is sufficient uh, if you like, redundancy built into African political systems to allow them to withstand uh, HIV AIDS and still yes, be hampered in the prospects for the, the development economic, social, and political development, but not um, go into any terminal decline or AIDS-specific crises. Um, let me move on to the third and final uh, aspect of, of, of AIDS exceptionalism, which is really to ask, what is it good for? Um, what function has it played? How has it served you know, the purposes of governance in the wider sense of institutions, government, and those who are in power, sustaining themselves, reproducing themselves, uh, exercising or extending their authority. Um, now when the HIV AIDS epidemic first exploded in, in, in the US, there was no shortage of social critics who, who, who began to delve into the works of, of Michel Foucault and others, and to look at the way in which the, the epidemic could be used as a way of policing sexuality, controlling uh, groups like gays, etc. Um, Twenty years on, what's most striking is the extent to which this didn't happen. It didn't follow that path at all, however predictable it was, however um, some leading politicians like Ronald Reagan might have wanted it to. And the same is true of international aid policies and programs. There are only a few instances like Cuba, like some militaries, where coercive state power, state apparatus has actually been used to really control people's uh, sexuality or, or behavior or lock them away. Um, but this doesn't mean that the international HIV AIDS apparatus doesn't reflect, doesn't substantiate power. It just does it in a rather more interesting and subtle way. It does it partly through an idiom of resistance. If one is, were to tell in a more journalistic way the narrative of, of, of how and why global HIV AIDS has come from being nothing, having no funding at all, to uh, approximately 10 billion uh, expenditure in the last year, one might want to look at some of the heroic figures that have you know, smashed the shibboleths of, of, of international public health policy, made some breakthroughs against the odds. The North American gay activists, etc. Individuals such as Jonathan Mann, 
World Health Organization pioneer in health and human rights. In Uganda, we have people like Masinga Finilutaya coming out and, and, and singing about HIV AIDS, even while very visibly physically sick himself. Noreen Kaleva starting the first AIDS NGO, Uwaring uh, Museveni speaking out and claiming the credit for what everyone else in this country was doing. And in South Africa, treatment activists like Zaki Ahmed, you know, etc., etc., and some international public servants, people like Jim King, pushing uh, universal access to treatment. Consistently, expectations have been overturned. And I think this is why uh, the international AIDS apparatus is such an interesting object of study for the exercise of power and, and governmentality. Um, we have an international apparatus and, and, and debate which is diverse, it's disorderly, it's acrimoniously divided on many issues, but there are some areas of common ground. And I think if we begin to identify the, the areas where you have consensus or truce, we begin to understand a little bit more about how it works. There are a few things that cause deeper or less bridgeable divisions among highly motivated groups of people than talking about sex and drugs and making public policy on that. Yet, it has happened. And let's look at America. In the last few years, US politics has been more divided, more partisan than at any time for a generation or more. There are very, very few things that lawmakers in the US Congress on left and right can agree upon. But one thing that they have agreed upon is that there should be more funding for HIV and AIDS. America isn't, of course, the only source of HIV AIDS funding. It's not even the biggest source but uh, globally, but it, but it is a very, very substantial one. Um, I'll get back to the nature of this ideological truth, but I'll, I'll, I'll just make a couple of, 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 of remarks about the implications of the fact that HIV AIDS is a sort of neutral ground in American politics with very, very unusual political space. It has had some spillover effects onto other areas of, of, of international public health. It's helped pull them up. Um, George Bush, for example, has had, has had an initiative on malaria and on bird flu. But these are really afterthoughts. These are really spillovers. They're beneficiaries of the very special attention that HIV AIDS has, has got. Um, and the, and, and the, the consensus is very uneven. Of course, there are, there's a lot of passion over treatment, an area on which everyone agrees. There, there are some sharp disagreements on, 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 on issues around prevention. And, but the consensus is, is, I think, both a product and a cause of AIDS exceptionalism. This is where the politics of AIDS exceptionalism really hits. This is where the rubber hits the road. And this is, what, this is the, I think, the reason why such a vast amount of money has been channeled to it. Two things, I think, are shared across the political spectrum. And the first is this, what I would call, following Peter Baldwin, epidemiological individualism. For liberals, supporting HIV-AIDS programs is, a continu is continuing a legacy of rights-based activism. It's about developing a model of public health that empowers and emancipates the individual. It's about supporting activists. For conservative Christians, it's about individual choices and morality. Abstinence is, just about, is about just saying no. 
And the two sides identify a different mix of rights and responsibilities, but what they agree on is that it is individual decisions that determine not only whether the individual becomes HIV positive, but whether the epidemic spreads. And this is in a clear contrast to the more statist traditions of public health. It's a consensus in support of an exceptionist response. There's also an untheorized consensus in the US about the US's own exceptions, about America's own exceptional <coughs> responsibility to intervene and solve the world's problems, to apply its technology, its funds, its goodwill, its organization, a sort of Wilsonian philanthropic imperialism. And this is shared across the political spectrum in the US as well. And one of the areas in which um, one sees this very clearly is, 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 is HIV and AIDS. Curiously enough, another area in which you see it is, is, is the other area I work on, which is, which is Darfur, where you have this extraordinary bipartisan consensus that um, the Americans should, 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 should use force over, over Darfur. Um, what is the international, this exceptionist response good for? Let's look at Africa. There's not actually very much evidence that it's good for prevention. The data on AIDS programs actually preventing HIV infection are, are, are pretty scarce and pretty poor. Um, it's, obviously, it's made an impact on treatment, though a much more modest impact than, 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 than its advocates uh, initially heralded. The most substantial agreement, uh, the most substantial achievement, I would argue, is that the HIV-AIDS response in Africa, and indeed in much of the rest of the world, has been mounted without any crackdowns on the people who are living with HIV and AIDS. Without the sort of coercive measures mounted at scale or consistency against commercial sex workers, other people easily stigmatized at high risk, especially people living with HIV and AIDS. There are, of course, a number of you know, shocking exceptions to this rule. Um, but it is a public health emergency that has not been an occasion for the assertion of the coercive power of the state. On the contrary, what we have seen is that the international HIV and AIDS response has strengthened civil society. It's empowered activists and NGOs. It's linked them into international networks. And it's given them un hitherto undreamed influence in European and American capitals. Who would have thought 20 years ago that African women living with HIV would be represented on the boards of major multilateral funding organizations, and that it would be more than tokenism. Now, supporting civil society is, is, is one of the secondary aims of the international AIDS response, but it is the aim that has been most consistently achieved. One might be tempted, if one were conspiratorial, to say this is, quote, the real function of the international AIDS response is this political intervention. Um, I wouldn't say that that is the, the real intention. But because the way in which the international architecture for development cooperation for engagement with these countries works, it is an aim that is far more easily achieved than the aim of preventing HIV. It's an aim in which the really hard, solid interests of those involved in the apparatus are most deeply manifest. And liberals and, and, and American 
Christian fundamentalists may want to support very different manifestations of civil society, but they all agree that civil society should be supported. Um, and there's another element here as well, and this is, this, this is really the last um, substantive point that I want to make on, on, on this sort of consensus, is that the, sorry, I lost my train of thought moment there, um, is the, the consensus that, that crosses the Atlantic, um, where the European response, and of course one simplifies here, is a focus on the social and economic circumstances that, that constrain the individual's freedom of action. The, the mantra that HIV AIDS is, is a development issue, and an issue that demands that funds be spent on education, women's empowerment, poverty alleviation, etc. This is not how the Americans want to see their money spent, but it's how, until very recently at least, DFID and, and a number of European countries would like to see, see their money spent. There's an interesting convergence here, an interesting exceptionalist umbrella, which is the, the security discussions here. The extent to which the, there has been a an untheorized and actually empirically largely, I would argue, unsubstantiated argument that HIV is a, a hard security threat to the survival state. I quoted the US national intelligence estimate. This, the actual initiative to bring HIV AIDS as a security issue to uh, the CIA, to the National Intelligence Council, and then to the UN Security Council, came from a Democrat administration. It came from people who were concerned primarily with what one might call soft human security issues. But the issue, the moment it got into the political establishment in Washington, migrated into the Pentagon and the hard security issues. And this uneasy coexistence has continued since. Uh, a, a, a quiet tussle as to who would define the security agenda over HIV and AIDS. Is it those who see, who are primarily concerned with the traditional hard security issues of the viability of armies, the viability of states, or those who are, who, who are interested in much broader human security issues? And the fact that this debate has been allowed to continue and actually has, has um, very deliberately kept empirical analysis away at harm's length has allowed for the construction of a that can bring the Europeans and the Americans together on this issue. It's a functional ignorance, if you like. An exceptionalism of threat that creates an umbrella under which diverse philosophies of foreign assistance and national interests can, can coexist. I suspect that is not going to be sustainable for very much, much longer. So AIDS exceptionalism has allowed a large and diverse cluster of activities to be protected and promoted. It hasn't eliminated controversy, but it's mitigated and managed disagreement to the extent that it hasn't imperiled the viability of the international AIDS apparatus. It's, it's nurtured a very vibrant civil society in, in places where that civil society was very fragile, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And that has political implications that those of us who believe in democracy and civil society, I think, will, will, will welcome. Um, and arguably, the international aid 
the global AIDS response of the last 20 years, which, as I say, has been exceptionalist in these different, uh, these different ways, has had more impact on these social and political processes of liberalization than it has on the course of the pandemic itself. Um, let me conclude just with a couple of remarks about the implications of revisionism and how the, re and, and the challenge that will be before people like Peter Piot in managing revisionism, the revisionism trend, such that they don't uh, lose out seriously in terms of the profile, in terms of the funding of HIV and AIDS over the coming um, years. I think it's going to be very important for a special focus to be sustained on the hyper-endemic areas of Southern Africa where there truly is an exceptional um, threat. I think it's important also that the, the, the very specific threats that emerge within the rather reduced generalized epidemics of Eastern and Central Africa be recognized. The threats of, of, of epidemics among intravenous drug users, among uh, men who have sex with men in African cities need, I think, to be especially recognized. Um, so this revisionism is a moment of threat and opportunity, and I think it shouldn't be responded to with defensiveness by the, the, the global leaders of HIV and AIDS. Um, I think defensiveness will, will breed only a level of distrust and, and a level of, of neglect. I think the much finer empirical analysis that is possible both epidemiologically and I think also politically should allow for the response to be steered in, 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 in a rather more effective direction over the coming decades. If you have to leave, please leave rapidly. We have about half an hour questions. And I was particularly pleased that our advanced member of the audience there was so much in agreement with the things that Alex had to say. Mm -hmm. I thought that showed a tremendous intellectual activity. Um, I just said to Alex, as he was sitting down, that I thought that was quite extraordinarily good lecture, quite amazing, very stimulating, uh, particularly stimulating because we have next week uh, Michel Kalsachkin, who is one of the main movers and one of the main spenders of the money, these huge resources which Alex has pointed to, but also because two years ago in this series, uh, Peter Piot gave a lecture about AIDS exceptionalism, and on May the 15th, Peter Piot will be coming here to talk about AIDS exceptionalism revised. So put that date in your diary, remember Alex's remarks, and come fully primed to discuss these issues in a sophisticated way, as Alex has shown us, uh, with both Michel Kazachkin and Peter Piot. 
We have microphone down here. We have a microphone upstairs. So if you have questions, please put your hands up. Please be aware that this is being recorded and will be part of a podcast on the LSE website. Question at the back there. Please say who you are and then give your question clearly. We'll take three questions at a time. So we'll do tranches of three questions. First question. Well, thank you very much for your very uh, interesting and stimulating lecture. I, I wonder Who are you? you and what Sorry, my name is Peter Shackleton. I work for Save the Children UK, although I'm not here representing them tonight. Uh, I wonder if you'd say something about AIDS exceptionalism and the impact that it's had on strengthening uh, health systems in developing countries uh, and the and health systems' abilities to deal with both communicable non-communicable diseases uh, and underlying determinants of health, such as malnutrition. Question in the middle here, please. There you are, that's it. Uh, I'm Bob Groves. I work for a company called HLSB on international health development. Um, the FID is right in the middle of revising its, or the UK's, international strategy on AIDS. What should it include? That's a really good any questions question, isn't it? <laughs> and gentlemen there. My name is Tim Pascoe. <coughs> this is 23 years HIV positive, and I wrote a book, AIDS in Africa, How Did That Happen? Do you have any idea why South Africa, South African immediate neighbors, are so much worse than a country like Malawi? Okay, we'll take those three questions now. Okay, shall I take them from here? Yeah. yeah. Um, Peter Shackleton, impact on, on, on health systems. I think that the, the, the attention to HIV and AIDS was one of the first things that really brought attention to, to the need to help strengthen Africa's health systems and health systems in general, but particularly in Africa. And therefore, HIV AIDS had, had a tremendous positive impact on all health problems. Well, the response to HIV AIDS had a tremendously positive in, in, in impact in that regard. I think it's, it's clearly been, in, in many cases, an unbalanced response in that too many, uh, dis a disproportionate level of resources has gone into HIV and AIDS in some countries, which has drawn particularly human resources from, from, from others. And it, 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 it's interesting that, that there are people who do modeling of, of, of the outcomes of negotiations among power, those who hold power, stakeholders. And, 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 and if you run the models for uh, those involved in HIV AIDS only, there's, a, there's this huge pressure towards universal access. But if, but if you put in all those concerns with other health and indeed other development issues, there's a major adjustment in, 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 in terms of a downward spending. On, of the amount of, on HIV AIDS. And I think that's the trajectory that we are, that we are on now. The rest is, um, is, is, is catching up. Just one particular point, though, also in that, which is that the, um, the report of the Joint Learning Initiative on Human Resources for Health, which came out in just over three years ago, which was very instrumental in putting the issue of, of health workers on the international agenda, was partly spurred by the concern large numbers of health workers were dying. In fact, when the, when, when the issue was 
closely analyzed, international migration of health workers came out as a much bigger factor. But, it, but it's an interesting example of how HIV AIDS drew attention to, to other underlying problems. But I think things are now moving on. DFID strategy. Um, I think the, what is becoming clear now is that the strategy needs to be very, very different for different places uh, because of the diversity of, of, of the, the pandemic. And having a single strategy is, 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 is simply not workable. So that if you look at the, the countries of, 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 of Southern Africa, for example, you have a, a raft of measures that are, are, are necessary in, in terms of prevention, uh, treatment, and impact mitigation that are very, very different from elsewhere. So that in Southern Africa, clearly, you know, every type of prevention activity needs to be promoted. Um, on impact mitigation, when you're looking at children affected by HIV and AIDS, if, if you go to China or Southeast Asia, you would target very specifically the children who, who have lost parents to, to AIDS or family members or are infected themselves. In southern and eastern Africa, you would target all children because you don't want to I, I you particularly single out and identify and stigmatize the children who, who, who have lost parents to, um, to AIDS. You would, it, it just doesn't make sense. You, you need a social protection packages for all poor and vulnerable children, whether or not they are directly affected by HIV and AIDS. So the, 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 the calibration of response to, to circumstance and associated with that, the, the national ownership of those responses um, is, is, I think, very important. Why is Southern Africa so much worse? Um, I think the number one reason is, is uh, the level of concurrency, the, the, the fact that you have sec um, sexual... Uh, networks that are nets rather than strings, rather than having um, what we tend to have in, in, in Europe, which is people are, have uh, a succession of usually monogamous relationships. Uh, in, in, in Southern Africa, they're all simultaneous, and that allows for very, very rapid spread of HIV through the population. Um, the the I haven't seen the, 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 the data on relative concurrency there, uh, on, on concurrent, the level of concurrent partnerships relative to South Africa, but I suspect that they are, they are, they are less. Maybe someone who is uh, more numerate with, that, with those data can, can help enlighten us. Ellie. Even though I know who you are, you say who you are. My name is Erling Hurt. I'm a PhD researcher here at NSC. Where do you see exceptionalism going, given other disease epidemics, the split between the development and uh, security agenda? If we include the idea of normalization, will it be normalization, or do we need a new exceptionalism? That's a very straightforward and unconvoluted. <laughs> there was somebody oh right, over there. And then there's somebody else over here. Nice question. Mm. Uh, Brianna Harrison. I'm an LLM student here at the LSE. 
Can you speak up just a little? I couldn't hear you even with the microphone. Okay, Come I'm on, don't be frightened. My name is Brianna Harrison. I'm an LLM student at the LSE. Um, could you comment perhaps on the impact that you think HIV exceptionalism has had for the implementation of human rights, both civil and political rights, as well as economic and social and cultural rights in countries where perhaps they would have otherwise been uh, less willing to accept that legal and political framework? And there's a gentleman over there with his hand up. Who you're getting a lot of exercise this evening. Thank you very much, Ed. My name is Desmond Wims. I'm a health specialist with HLSP, along with uh, Bob over there. But I should confess, until recently, I was heading up the Three Ones team in UNAIDS itself. And I would like to ask Alex his advice to UNAIDS, given it has taken a very strong position in advocacy of universal access. Would you regard universal access itself as a, an, a, a perhaps untenable for the future exceptionalist position? Mm. Mm. Erling, I think, I, I think your, your phrase, new exceptionalism, is possibly anticipating what, what Peter Piotti is going to come with in a, in a few months, because um, the, I think the most likely outcome of what's happening now is that over the next couple of years, um, the HIV-AIDS response is going to be largely normalized. But let's bear in mind that it is a it, 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 the, the revisionism is a revisionism from where we are now. It's not going back to a hypothetical. Uh, let, let me stand up so people can see. Um, it's, it's not going back to how it would have been if we'd had a quite normal response from the beginning. We're not going to see a, a, a reversion to the sorts of coercive, uh, state-centric public health uh, responses that, um, that existed before. It's going to. Be, it's going to. I think entailed uh, a leveling off of funding, possibly even uh, a bit of a drop of funding, and, and a leveling off of, of political interest. But I don't think that I, I, I'd be very surprised if we saw a, a regression in terms of, of traditional style uh, public health approaches. I think the, the institutions that the at the international level and in national civil society that are protecting this response are sufficiently robust, particularly in Africa. I think Asia is perhaps it's going to be more contested because countries like China will make their own policies and responses, whatever the rest of the world says. Um, so perhaps new exceptionalism is, 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 a, is a, nice, a nice flag for that. Um, which brings me to the, uh, the point of the impact on human rights and, and countries that would be, uh, under almost any other circumstances, would have been, uh, would have been repressive. I think this, the, if we take a step back, we ask, why is it that, let's look at sub-Saharan Africa, why is it that countries like Uganda, like, like Tanzania, like um, across the board, have implemented this response that is that is so much based on civil society that is broadly speaking so respectful of human rights and acknowledging there have been you know, some quite significant shortcomings here and there. 
And a lot of it has to do with money. A lot of it has to do with the fact that these countries are aid dependent and that the, the HIV AIDS epidemic unfolded at a time when there was really only one global source of money, which was the West. And in order to get that money, you had to play by the rules. And if playing by the rules meant opening up the space for the civil society, then so be it. And they did. And civil society activists, organizations gained influence and unable, as it were, to gain direct influence very often, you know, unable to get access to heads of state or to, uh, to ministries. They got it indirectly. They got themselves linked into international NGO networks like you know, Oxfam, Network for Frontier, etc., and therefore got indirect influence. And these heads of state you know, are, are very canny. They recognize where, you know, where power lies, where money lies, and they, and, and they quickly you know, accommodated to this reality. So I think it's, it, it, it's a, uh, it's really been quite an important uh, impact and, and it has contributed to the overall democratization of, of uneven democratization, but the appreciable democratization of sub-Saharan Africa in the last um, 15 or, or, or 20 years. And every now and then we see what the response would have looked like if it hadn't been for that. And it's interesting to look at armies because armies are the one place where uh, African states generally are immune from external influence. And every army that can do it does mandatory testing. Most of them will, if they can, simply discharge anyone who tests HIV positive, throw them out on, on the streets or into the civilian sector. And I think that when you look at the way armies respond, that is probably how states would have responded without this, um, without this governance uh, structure that, we're, um, that was put in place. Uh, and I suspect that will, that will persist. Um, universal access. Um, it's very hard to argue against you know, such a profoundly important principle. Uh, but when resources are scarce and, and real decisions have to be made, allocation of resources. I think as this, um, as that, the, the treatment access uh, mechanisms are scaled up and, and it becomes harder and harder to, to, to actually make this unprecedentedly large and complex public service delivery operation function with the human and institutional resources that are available. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to say, what about other diseases too? What if, you know, if, if the pot is not unlimited, why, why are we investing in, in this extraordinarily complex, intense, financially and administratively burdensome exercise of universal access when we could actually deliver other things with the same resources? So there's going to be a tussle over that. And, and and it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be very interesting to see how the G8 and the, the UN leaders who so readily you know, sign off on these things and then hand them on to these guys at UNAIDS and Global Fund and so on, how they, how, how, how they cope with the reality that their promises and aspirations are actually beyond the resources that they are ready to commit and, and, and the capacities that are immediately available in those countries. That's going to be quite, quite interesting.
which will be won't be in public. They will it will be handled in, in, in another way. There's a question at the front here. If we could have the microphone here, please. <coughs> Hi, um, Lizzie actually from SOAS. I just wanted to ask if you could remark on the different strategy of somewhere like Botswana that has managed to twin relatively coercive action in the form of mandatory testing with universal access to treatment, um, and whether this has a greater or lesser impact on prevalence and stigma reduction. And lady in the middle here, please. Um, hi, my name is Sarah. I'm an LSE student. Could, um, you, could you just speak up? Sure. Um, my name is Sarah. I'm an LSE student. Um, uh, you spoke of exceptionalist uh, political cohesion within the U.S. To, in relation to HIV/AIDS. Um, do you see that cohesion in specific relation to global HIV/AIDS versus national AIDS? Um, especially given the new staph infection being seen in gay men in areas of the U.S. that's uh, kind of revitalizing initial discourses to HIV/AIDS, which are, um, you know, which the initial response was seen as a lifestyle problem that demanded social control. And the gentleman at the back there. And I think we'll take the lady at the back there while you're over there, because then we've got four questions. All right, Alex. Hello, um, I'm Ilaria, I'm a student here at LSE as well. I have actually two questions, but quite oh. short. Uh, one is a technical question. Um, I was actually wondering where, uh, at the beginning of the, your lecture, you said Mozambique is a case in which uh, prevalence uh, data are going down. I was wondering where the data com comes from, because I worked on HIV AIDS in Mozambique last summer, and that came as a surprise to me. And secondly, um, you also argued that um, HIV-AIDS will not have the tragic um, impact on political stability and security in African countries. Um, does that also imply that the socio-economic impact of HIV-AIDS will not be as tragic as foreseen and as a consequence will not uh, lead to social inequities and unequilibrium that subsequently lead to unrest. And the question over there, behind you there. Uh, hello, I'm, I'm Harry, a uh, graduate student here at LC. Um, I have a question regarding the institutional implications because, I mean, you've referred several times to the, the very complex uh, network of actors that are involved in combating HIV. And I was wondering what you thought were the broader institutional implications for the international humanitarian community and intergovernmental organizations. Sorry, could you, could you follow on a little bit on, on, on explaining? Yeah, sure. I mean, UNAIDS as such is an exceptional international yeah. institution in the way it's been uh, created and the dynamics that are taking place in, in its network-like structure is very different from many other international organizations. And I was wondering, and, and definitely its contacts with, with other um, state actors and non-state actors. And I was wondering how you, I mean, as an observer for politics of AIDS exceptionalism, um, are, well, thinking about what, what the implications could be in the future for, for international cooperation and the international humanitarian community. Thank you. Starting with, with, with Botswana, um, the, it's 
too early to tell what the impact will be of, of um, it's, it's, strictly speaking, it's routine testing rather than mandatory testing there, and it is possible to, to opt out. Um, so it, it's, it, it's, I think, too early, too early to tell, but I think it's, it, it's very important to, to monitor that impact. One observation, though, from, from militaries is that it's um, where HIV testing is very often mandatory, is that it actually becomes destigmatized when it is mandatory. It, when, when you have the option of going or not going for a test, then a lot of people who, who actually want to go for a test for uh, personal reasons will, will not want to go in a way that is visible to their, their friends and peers and so on. And so they will sneak off to another town or whatever, or maybe will go for the test but not come back with the result. Whereas if the moment everyone is obliged to do it, then um, for a lot of people it's actually a relief. So there is um, possibly an assumption, uh, a, a set of assumptions about the, the, the stigmatizing impact of, uh, of routine or mandatory testing that may not be borne out when, when it's actually implemented. We may find that it, it, in some circumstances, at any rate, it's the reverse of what we, what we expect. Um, the, the consensus on, on, on the, the US political consensus on HIV AIDS, I think it's primarily global. It's, it's, it's HIV AIDS out there, but um, it's, it, it's where the meeting point is. I think in domestic HIV and AIDS, I think it's, 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 it's just very sensitive and, 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 and a very divisive issue, which I, I, I really don't see <laughs> US politicians agreeing on. Um, at all. The Mozambique data question, the, uh, the last UNAIDS um, global report indicated an uptick in, 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 in Mozambique statistics, but I, actually uh, Erling and I were, we were discussing this yesterday and, and the Mozambique data seems to be all over the place. I don't know, maybe you want to make Do you have anything you'd like to say about that, Erling? Because you probably know more about this yeah. than anybody else. Yeah, about the data in Mozambique. Wait for the wait for the microphone. Erling is is doing a, a very thorough uh, investigation of aspects of HIV/AIDS in Mozambique, and he knows the data inside out. They expected uh, the prevalence to be 16.2 by 2009, and that was already reached by 2004 in the 2005 report. And they expected they didn't expect. It's one of the few places where you actually seen in the new millennium the, the epidemic growth. And I'm not sure for which reason they haven't not been uh, able to, to, to lower the, the estimates in the 2007 report by UNAIDS, whether it's due to the number of uh, sentinel sites they had by 2000. They had 36 that were pretty well dispersed for, uh, throughout the So what you're saying basically is there's a lot of unclarity about how the data are assembled and there's a lot of unclarity about what they mean. So your question was a good question because it's allowed us to clarify the unclarity, which is a very Rumsfeldian statement if you think about it. There are clear unclarities and unclear unclarities. Yeah. This is an unclear unclarity. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, a couple more 
things. Yeah. Um, the, will the social and economic impact be less and most fair? I think yes. And let, let me give an example which is, which is awful. Um, a few years ago, you saw UNICEF and others, you know, producing these, these horrifying charts that said, you know, 12 million orphans and, and uh, 12 million children orphaned by AIDS up from, you know, zero children orphaned by AIDS back in 1986 or something. And, you know, horrific chart shooting up. If this continues, um, you know, the, the, the famous ability of the African extended family to care for these kids is going to break. You know, they're all going to... Um, we're relying on grandmothers, they're going to be child-headed households, what happens when the grandmothers die? When we look at the data now, it's very interesting. Very, very few child-headed households, and most of those are, are by choice. Um, and it, it's, a, it's, it's an elder teenager living with younger siblings, usually in order to retain possession of a piece of land. Um, very few skip-generation households, there's always, always you know, a, a primary adult in And the, num the predicted numbers of you know, orphans on the streets, etc., simply haven't materialized anywhere. And if you take a, a step back and ask, really, what is the issue here? What, do, you know, what are we counting? Then we begin to understand why this was uh, uh, a certainly humanitarian concern, but not a social concern on the scale that was expected. And the main reason for that is that in many parts of Africa, uh, most parts of sub-Saharan Africa, large numbers of children spend substantial periods of their childhood away from their biological parents, or away from one of them at any rate, because of labor migration in southern Africa, because of attending school, for all sorts of reasons. And a, an increase in 12, by 12 million of the number of children who had lost one other or both parents was not a massive increase in that number. It was only, and one can play around with the figures, but it was only an increment on the number of children who, who, who were not living with both biological parents. And yes, it is an increase in stress. Yes, there are many people who, are, who, who, who have become impoverished. Yes, there are, there are clear indications that children who are double orphans do less well in school, have you know, many psychosocial needs, etc. But it has not added up to the social crisis that was expected. And, that, and by the same token that the, 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 the impacts of HIV-AIDS are complex and there are many pathways, so there are adverse effects down the line that we hadn't expected, that complexity also means there's resilience and, um, that we hadn't anticipated. And it turns out the, the resilience is just as important as the, as, as the adverse um, interesting question on, on, on the international architecture, because what the HIV-AIDS pandemic has also coincided with is a, if you like, a democratization international development cooperation. Um, 20, 25 years ago, um, UN agencies, bilateral funders, you know, there was no DFID, uh, Ministry for Overseas Development, Overseas Development Administration, etc. Well, you know, staffed by civil servants, many of them ex-colonial types, etc., were pretty much impervious to civil society influence. Certainly, you know, civil society influence from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, many things have changed that. And I think 
probably the most important is simply a generational change. And we, have, we, we, we have a new generation of, of, of people not only in power but in, in the civil service who, who, who have you know, different worldviews, many of them have been to um, you know, the LSE and have taken Tony's courses or David Keane's courses or you know, whatever, uh, who, have, who, have, who have served in NGOs for a while. And so you know, there's a peer group that, that, that is inside these institutions and also outside them in the NGO sector and something of a revolving door. Um, and it, 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 it is that opening up of the international aid institutions here in Washington, D.C., in Geneva, etc., that has also opened it up to, to, to influence from uh, Asian, African, Latin American uh, civil society institutions. UNAIDS was one of the very first to sort of pioneer this in a formal sense um, in, 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 in the structure of its procedures and its governing board, etc. Uh, I think we're, we'll see a bit of a pushback from that at the multilateral level because the increasing role of countries like China that don't, don't want to follow that model is, means that we, you know, we may have, um, you know, the, the, the liberal tide of history may be turning a bit, but it's not going to go all the way back. And so definitely the, that UNAIDS model has, has had some impact in itself, and it's also reflective I'm afraid, very afraid, that there's not time for any more questions. It's just before 8 o'clock, and it would be unreasonable for, to expect Alex to go on for much longer. I'm sure we could go on for an awful lot longer. He is going to sign books outside, however, so I'm sure that you might want to involve him in conversation then. Alex, that was a stupendously good lecture, and thank you very much.